This is a Federal News Network podcast. Serving in the military can take a serious toll on the body. New technologies and techniques might be able to save service members' backs and joints. One Air National Guard squadron is working with Sparta Science on a data-driven approach to training better. Federal News Network's Scott Massioni spoke with Sparta's founder, Dr. Phil Wagner, and the 118th Air Support Operations Squadron Superintendent, Chief Master Sergeant Jeremy Mullins. We're a part of Air Force Special Warfare, and so we do a lot that just beats us up in terms of legs and lower back. You know, we're, we're always carrying heavy rucksacks that uh, could weigh anywhere from 70 to upwards of 120-ish pounds uh, or more <laughs> in certain cases. And so uh, we're always, uh, when downrange doing a mission, we always have body armor on at a minimum. So that's a constant 35, 30 to 40 pounds uh, that you're wearing. And then, you know, we do things like jumping out of planes, fast roping out of helicopters, uh, and things like that. And so we have a lot of, you know, ankle and leg injuries from those types of activities and then the lower back stuff, because we're always carrying a heavy load. And in all honesty, it hasn't been until recently that we've gotten a little bit smarter and realized that there's a waistband on the rucksack. And so we've just, uh, haven't and so we've just basically put it on our shoulders and just gutted through it and whatever happens happens and uh and so we just suck it up and like this is the way it's going to be well that lead has led to a lot of lower back problems so instead of distributing the weight the way we should have we're just putting a lot of strain on that lower back when we're carrying that just because of our typical pt regiment there's been a lot of running and and so that leads to uh you know some lower back phil i wanted to ask you this sort of really work that is going into and strain that is going into people's bodies by doing this kind of work what sort of long-term effects does that have for people how can that affect the readiness of a unit or even just a, a person as a veteran later in their life when they're trying to go on and, and maybe have a civilian job after they retire from the military I think the key thing, just in listening to Jeremy, you know, he he used the term constant and always several times. You know, that's really key because there's a massive postural stimulus that's going on that is always constantly there with that ruck and the load that's being carried. And so a lot of times when people think about fatigue and injury, they think about the lower body. But, you know, a lot of times your core, your trunk, is also easily fatigued. And when you're carrying things around consistently like that, you know, Jerry, Jeremy referenced the, one of the metrics we look at, which is explode, which is really the ability to brace or tighten. And that's your core's ability to tighten. And he mentioned sometimes that gets really low. And that's really this core fatigue that starts to set in with all this constant carrying of heavier loads. And that starts to create a risk, you know, particularly in that low back area because your core muscles get fatigued. Therefore, then you have to have data and opportunities to, you know, let that core area recover. And the interesting thing about the core, it's like your internet in that you can be the fastest typer in the world. You can have the strongest legs in the world. 
But if you don't have a good internet, if you don't have a strong core or a core, a core that's not fatigued, you can only go so fast as the internet or your core allows. The challenge with the core is it does expose you not just to low back, but to other injuries of the lower body because you lack the recovery or the strength in that core region. Talk to me a little bit about the work that you two are doing together. And, and Phil, if you want to add in any other uh, work that you're doing with other military units. I'll start. Uh, we were looking for ways to get something in place at all the squadrons because we did not have a physical therapist, a strength coach, and all this other stuff that our active duty counterparts had. And so we needed something. Partner and I started looking into different things, different avenues, and we came across Sparta. And they came out and did a couple of demos, and we decided that that was probably a good way to go. And that's kind of what started this relationship. And then they fielded to the squad a couple of years ago, got off and running, and I think on a fairly decent trajectory. And then COVID hit and things kind of slowed down. I think it's just now starting to pick back up where people are starting to use them again. But it's super important for us to make sure our guys are maintained and ready to go. We're asked to do a lot of things for our nation that most people just don't want to do. And we just never know when we're going to get called upon. Look at Ukraine as the primary example. Phil, could you fill us in on just how you're mentoring these units? You know, is it a program? Is it education? Uh, I know that you have some technologies that you use so it seems like you're helping out the military in a number of ways it is such a bilateral communication process right we certainly know the science and the data but ultimately when we're dealing with human beings we have to communicate in the terms and the goals that really speak to them and so the guard is you know, as Jeremy mentioned different than the army different than the special forces they all have different personality types and different job responsibilities. But the unified goal is the same, and that's movement health. How do you operate without pain or fear? And how can we use data to do that at scale? So a lot of the work we do is certainly on the data side, using machine learning and AI in order to build out risk models and identify readiness. But then the other piece is our customer success team working with units to understand how we can make it easier to use, how we can get information that's the most important, you know, highlighted at the top level. Meanwhile, we're, we're also in the background trying to innovate new things. Jeremy mentioned balance, right, which is relatively new for us, but very gaining, gaining a lot of uh, traction because balance is such a core component, um, particularly with head injuries or any injury where you're unable to move explosively. So how do you at least have early indicators on if that individual is improving? Because the rehab process is very difficult, particularly in guardsmen, warfighters, because they're all great at compensating. And so just eyeballing things doesn't work. You know, how can you use really granular data to say, that guy says he's all right, he looks all right, but I just want to make sure. Dr. Phil Wagner, founder of Sparta Science, and the Chief Master Sergeant Jeremy Mullins. He's superintendent of the 118th Air Support Operations Squadron. They were speaking there with Federal News Network's Scott Massioni. Check out Scott's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, 
And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader? And what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Hmm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated. Uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 
12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we meet our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, And that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, And it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on What does it look like? Because I think successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the the, probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly black women and certainly gay Black women, uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka, so I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind. Um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And 
you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.